Welcome back to the Just Space. I'm JR. Mm, Dave. Mm, I'm G. <coughs> Rebecca. I'm so glad you actually caught on to that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for following my footsteps. I was I was hoping, Rebecca, since she was the last one going, I was hoping she would be the one to... <laughs> Her translator is broken. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, for uh, future reference, we're the Drift Space, and today we're going to be talking about Galaxy Quest, if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> Before we start our uh, discussion, how are you guys doing today? Well, I'm just thrilled we had the best opening for this ever, and I hope there's... <laughs> I don't think <laughs> we're going to no top that. involved. <laughs> Rep, you finished uh, Final Fantasy VII yet? No, not yet. I'm taking my sweet time. <laughs> you know, we're gonna we... be on like our fiftieth episode, still asking <laughs> the same questions. <laughs> What's funny is that like we we release these episodes uh, bi weekly, right? And and so even if she <laughs> has finished the game, it's going to be like months in, and we. <laughs> <laughs> Have you finished Final Fantasy VII yet? <laughs> Dave, how are you? I am living the dream. I am talking to my best friends about a nerdy movie, and I couldn't be happier. Wonderful. So with that, let's uh, drop. Yeah, let's drop right in because I meant to say drop. So let's <laughs> drop right in. <laughs> Good catch. So, Galaxy Quest is a story about a group of actors who star in a show much like some kind of Star Trek episode or something, I don't know. But they get involved in a real-life scenario when they're dragged into a peace treaty by a group of aliens who mistakenly think that the TV show is quote-unquote historical documents and have to fight off a real-life warlord. Now, the question I have for everybody before I announce the cast is, before all this started, what would you do if I told you there was a movie starring Alan Rickman, Sigourney Weaver, Tony Shalhoub, and Tim Allen? I'd be first in line. Well, my thing is, the, the first three actors you listed almost tells me that the movie may be some sort of drama, right? Because, right. you know, Alan Rickman, Sigourney Weaver, even Tony Shalhoub... Uh, but then you you threw in Tim Allen, and then, oh, oh, I know where we're going. <laughs> well, the reason I bring this up is just because, like G said, we have Alan Rickman, who's a great theatrical actor. And then we have Sigourney Weaver, who's been an alien. Tony Shalhoub, who's been a monk. And then you got Home Improvement. <laughs> but to me, this movie on paper probably shouldn't have worked but somehow it did and it gave us one of the most enjoyable pieces of nerd cinema i could think of what are you guys thoughts on the movie 
Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely love Galaxy Quest for a lot of reasons. One of the things I wanted to talk about was the choice of Tim Allen as the lead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about this. (laughs) Yes, please. But before I talk about Tim Allen specifically, just wanted to throw out a couple fun facts about who they were initially looking at for this. The studio initially wanted Kevin Klein as the captain, but he declined. They also wanted Bruce Willis, Tim Robbins, Mel Gibson, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, Bill Murray. All of them declined. Alec Baldwin also really wanted this, but the role was officially given to Tim Allen, who to me makes the most sense out of all of these actors that were you know, being sought after here. So let's think about where Tim Allen was at at this point in time. Fresh coming off of Home Improvement and the Santa Claus movie from a live action standpoint. I'm not bringing in Toy Story or anything like that. But the character of Jason is one that has a lot of fear and anxiety of being, you know, for lack of a better term, a one trick pony. You know, he had this one hit wonder, this TV show, and he is struggling to stay in the spotlight. You know, he's. He's kind of depressing <laughs> for for a lot of this movie. He's kind of a jerk to his friends. He's isolated and he just wants to continue to stay relevant. And he has that fear and anxiety, like I said, of being a one trick pony. And I imagine that this could have been something that someone like Tim Allen could really bring an authenticity to after coming off of what he might have feared had been his one hit wonder being home improvement. I think the choice of having Tim Allen in this as the lead, as this particular lead in this movie was absolutely spot on. It was brilliant. Yeah, you hit on some things that I did not think about at all. The fact that, you know, Tim Allen was basically only known for home improvement at this time. You know, the the Galaxy Quest came out in December of 1999. Uh, Home improvement ended in May of 1999. And all I could think of really was, you know, what better guy could there have been for this role? He, He plays someone so full of himself in both Home Improvement and in Galaxy Quest, whether he's in the right or not. Tim's character in Home Improvement was always, he always felt like he was right, even when he was wrong, <laughs> right? Exactly. He was, he, was, he, was, he was kind of full of himself in that regard. And here in, in Galaxy Quest, he kind of channels a little bit of that. He's really full of himself. You know, he's, he's very confident in his own swagger, confident that he can jump from being a movie star to... <laughs> actually commanding the what is the ship called the the uh, nte something the protector that's what it's called so actually a quick jumping note you know why it's called that the nte not the enterprise they added added that as the prefix of the ship so they wouldn't get sued by paramount (laughs) but okay that's funny uh (laughs) But you brought up how, you know, Tim Allen could potentially relate to this in the sense that Home Improvement was, you know, his big show. It could have been the only thing that he's known for, but he's actually done. He he did fairly well for himself after the fact. He's got a new show now where once again, he plays someone pretty full of himself, but he's just in the right this time. And (laughs) in, in, in terms of at least, you know, the storytelling regarding that show, but yeah, I thought I thought this was a very excellent choice. And 
you know, those other actors you mentioned, I, I looked that up too. It, none of them made a lot of sense to me in this regard because none of them had played roles that were comedically full of themselves. And the, the, the comedians that they did have on the docket didn't quite have that same, that same kind of stand-up swagger that Tim Allen brought to the character. I think, I think Steve Martin would have been great, but would have been a very, very different character had Steve Martin been in the role. You talked about people that were like casted in the movie. Did you guys know that the original director was Harold Ramis? Yes, yes. I did. And I did. he was concerned. He got concerned when Tim Allen came on board right. because of their previous movie. And he didn't know how basically for lack of a better term, he didn't know how to work with him. He didn't know how to best capitalize on his comedic talent. Right. Which I feel is a, disservice to tim when they just at least were approaching him about the part their meeting was very very i want to say rushed harold described it as an action hero playing a comedian and that's Hmm. judging by the lineup that you just named you know with robin williams and all the other comedians that's not what he was being told yeah that's interesting and and Harold Ramis later, when he saw the movie, he allegedly said that he he made a big mistake not taking the job. But that does kind of remind me, Jr., of something a uh, former mentor of ours said: there are no bad actors, just bad collaborations. Now, mm-hmm. I, there's an there's an argument against that, I'm sure. But the point is, I think that sometimes some directors and actors, it's not that they dislike each other. It's just that they don't they don't get the best out of one another. Yeah, they don't know how to build off each other and right. play off and each other. Maybe that's what, I mean, you know, I, I don't know for certain, but maybe that's what Harold Ramis was kind of sensing in this particular project. He, he, he feared that he couldn't get the best out of Tim Allen, and Tim Allen wasn't going to promote the best out of him. Agreed. Definitely, yeah. So one of the biggest things that I love about this movie is I don't so much see this as a movie about these actors who are inadvertently put in this real world scenario, but I see this more as a love letter to fandom. Oh, without a doubt. The core message for me is the fans are what make these sci-fi properties that we love real. It's a love letter to them. It's a celebration of the relationship that fans have with these characters and these stories. It's the fans that at the end of the day, they're going to save the day. And that's kind of what brought Trek back to life too. Yeah. And this is a big time celebration of that fact because this is this entire movie is inspired by in no small part by Trek. Yeah, (laughs) very, very clearly. I'm not sure, but I think somebody, someone said, finally, a good Star Trek movie about yeah. this. Yeah, you know that who that was? Brett Spiner. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay. It was, it was Data. <laughs> and Brett Spiner, in an interview, he saw the movie and he was inter- being interviewed about it. And he goes, this is brilliant. Why didn't we do this? <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And to quote another 
person from next gen, Will Wheaton has said something very similar talking about Galaxy Quest, calling it like the best Star Trek movie because it's about what makes Star Trek special. It's about the fans. You know, having a movie like this that celebrates basically people like us, you know, the the nerds in the back of the room that are geeking out about about Trek, about Star Wars, about Final Fantasy. <laughs> 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 it's a it's a celebration of us and that just makes me smile in such a big way because it was executed so so well you know you get a character like i can't remember justin long's character but you get a character like justin whoever justin long played and that's that representation of us because like he literally lived that dream where you know you you have like this end of the world scenario and your heroes are calling upon you for help. Yeah. Like that is so cool. <laughs> I think, I think we had a discussion at one point way, way long ago about suspension of disbelief. And that's exactly what this is. It's like where after Tim Allen's character, Jason was like, Hey, it's just a show and all that. And then later on he contacts him and he's like, it's real. It's all real. But that conversation where he's like, yeah, I know I'm just a nerd. You know, I'm just this. It's a show. I, li- I understand that. He's like, it's real. It's all real. I knew it. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a love letter to the fans about how engaging a fan can be because <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> wait. Oh, my God. I just I caught see what that. you did there. I just caught that. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I lost my topic. Thank you. <laughs> well, you talk about Justin Long's character, and I think his name is Brandon, by the way. Brandon and Jason's relationship, like star and fan relationship. But I think there's more, there's another relationship uh, between a star and a fan, and it's Jason and Mathazar. And, well, first of all, I want to say, I cannot remember how many times I watched this movie when it came out on VHS. It's still one of my favorites to this day. A lot of people think that it's a parody of Star Trek, like Spaceballs is to Star Wars. But I, that's not necessarily true. It's like you said, Dave, it's, this film is one colossal relationship story between the fan and the star. And the thing is, like we've been discussing, the creators behind the movie, they truly thought this was going to flop in the first place. It got what number seven in the box office but yeah it didn't do very well it did well compared and, to what it was up against well yeah no, even then it didn't do very well and and the marketing team had no faith in it whatsoever i think we're going to talk about that later but it was marketed as a kids movie yeah and there there was a slow following that slowly creeped up its way into popularity for, and for good reason. It was a sto- story about the fan and the star working together in a real life crisis. Of course, I say real life loosely, of course, because it takes place in space. But when I say real life, I also mean like dealing with bullying, abuse, insecurity, and confronting our fears as well as the truth. And I think this is best describes Jason and Mathazar's relationship. Jason Nesmith, the star, feeling like he's on top of the world, but recently finds out he's a complete laughingstock and has to deal with thoughts like, what am I doing with my life? What difference have I made? Then you have Mathazar, 
the fan, introducing himself and constantly idolizing Jason and genuinely asking for his help based on what he believed was the truth about about Jason. Of course, this this all comes full circle. Mathisar realizing that Jason is not really who he thought he was, and Jason realizing that he can become more than just an actor. Kind of reminds me of the line from <laughs> V for Vendetta after V sets Evie free from his made-up prison. He told her that artists use lies to tell the truth. Yes, I created a lie, but because you believed it, you found something true about yourself. I actually tried looking up that line, and lo and behold, it was literally a direct line from Pablo Picasso himself. Art is a lie that tells us the truth. Both Jason and Mathazar were thrown into their own lies, but the fact that they believed it, something amazing surfaced from within them. Jason is truly a kind and sincere man who wants to fight for the little guy, for the little guy's sake, not for glory's sake. And Mathazar, believing that Jason and his crew are his saviors for him and his people, later learns that he himself is just as worthy and strong, maybe even stronger, an even stronger leader, to fight and take care for his people. I mean, this is an alien whose home world has been obliterated by a tyrant, and, and the one thing that kept him going was, in fact, a television show. This movie is a painting of anybody who's going through rough times in life and hanging on to a light that is not only entertaining, but hopeful and tangible. That helps give meaning to that person's life. Whether it's a show, a book, a movie, person, anything, it's revealing who you truly are and what you really need through chaotic times. Uh, the more I think about this movie, the deeper it goes. It's, it's just that phenomenal. How come Rebecca's always the philosophical one? Yeah, Dave, you got mad at me about the Frieza thing last week? <laughs> Rebecca, stop stealing the spotlight. All right, well, someone else needs to talk. I'm not following that up. I'll close it out with something extra profound. You know, for me, this is a... It's going to be nearly impossible for me to follow up for <laughs> what Rebecca just said. But to say this in a not so eloquent way, I just found this to be a movie full of, you know, sincerity and authenticity all around. It felt like a very real and relatable movie that I deeply, deeply love. And it feels like it's a movie that loves me back. I can relate to that. I'll give you that because the scene, Absolutely. the scene where Jason has to talk to Mafasar and say, it's all a lie we were pretending not only does his heart break, but the audience hearts break as well, because we want this to be real. We want this to be fantastical. However, I like to point out that at the end, ba uh, Mafazar thought that they were lying to the bad guy. He's like, Oh, you guys just told a funny story. It's all a TV show. That's funny. I can't believe he fell for that. Was that the, because I thought he was just laughing at the fact that, you know, they fell for it, essentially. No, Because his that's... line is, they said their ship is a model this big, a very clever deception indeed. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but their colony, their race, doesn't know what deception is. So the fact that he said he was deceiving is kind of like, oh, wink, wink. You guys were telling a funny. 
that's what See, I that's took not, it. Yeah, that's not how I took it. That's interesting, though, that you took it that way, because that's not how I took it. Maybe I'm completely off my rocker. Thoughts? See, I, 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 that's, that's like my third viewing of it. I was like, wait, what if he does mean it like that? How did you guys take that line? Um, Honestly, <laughs> I'm kind of with JR on this. I thought that Mathazar truly thought that after what Jason told him that everything that was going on, this was all just one giant episode. That they were actually playing it up for yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. As in, oh yeah, we don't have a plan. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Kind of right. like to lower his, their guard or something like that. I, huh. Yeah, something like that. Interesting. Okay, that I, I, maybe I'm the idiot here. I, I that, That's just not how I took Dave? I feel like an idiot too because this is not something I have thought extensively about. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait! I have an insight nobody else does. Oh, I feel like Rebecca. Sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about the visual effects in this movie, if you don't mind. I remember seeing it in theaters for the first time. Not only did I laugh my butt off from all of this, but I was also mesmerized by how visually gorgeous it looked. And their visual supervisor is a man named Bill George, and he's he's quite the veteran who works for a little company called uh, Industrial Light and Magic, founded by some guy named uh, George Lucas. I don't know. Uh, anyway. Very small company. Yeah, it's a very small company. Uh, Dave, do you know this guy, George Lucas? Uh, Didn't he do a Star Wars once? Flash Gordon. I, like you're thinking of what? Flash Gordon. A I long time no, ago no. in a galaxy far away. Dave is, Dave is right. I think I remember a Christmas special. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't you dare besmirch the name. <laughs> we need Life Day now more than ever, darn it. <laughs> <laughs> we need the gold girl in here singing right now <laughs> anyway one of his first highlights uh bill george's highlights in his early career was designing miniature construction for a little film called blade runner oh, oh. yeah and he moved on to several other movies such as the star trek feature films a few Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, the Prisoner of Azkaban, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and so on. So it's no wonder that the visual effects looked so real and well-polished, especially at the near end of the century at the time. I read an article that at first George wanted to make the visuals cheesy and campy because it was a sci-fi comedy, but thankfully director Dean Periscott encouraged him to look beyond the unusual and focus more of how it would look in real life and not on a TV show, which frankly, if Periscott hadn't done that, and I think galaxy quest would have been less popular than it was, especially when it first came out of the box office. So it's interesting. You brought that up because I wanted to kind of hit on this as well. So Rebecca, you said you saw this in theaters. I wanted to know if anybody else witness this because it's three or four times and i watching this movie and i just now noticed it the movie actually comes out in three different segments when it first opens up we view everything like a what is the standard it's a like a 180 no yes i know what you're talking about 
It's yeah. like a TV screen. And then once it goes to the con, it stretches out. The one I don't notice, and I think I noticed it this time, is that when the bay doors open on the real life spaceship, it stretches out even more. It becomes full screen. Yeah. Did anybody, I, did anybody else notice that? You mean the aspect ratio changes? Yeah, the aspect ratio. Oh, I didn't notice that. No. It, it has like three different segments as like us as the viewer viewing it through the TV screen. And then it joins the Comic-Con where it opens up into the real world of fantasy and make-believe. And we know the line. But then when he's on the spaceship and the bay doors open, the aspect ratio just broadens up as if to say surprise this is a brand new world you didn't know that existed so not only does jason nesvitt's eyes get opened the audience experiences that with him so when rebecca's talking about making making this real making everything look real yeah the set on the tv show looks like crap it looks like a it looks like a star trek episode but then when you transfer it to the real life, everything is slick and shiny and new. And our eyes are opened up into this broad new world. And I think that is mind-blowing for a, a fan letter to the fans. You know, a, a love letter to the fans. That, that is a stylistic decision that I'm kicking myself for right, right now for not, not noticing. That's pretty awesome. That like scene that. gave me like a, a 2001 Space Odyssey feeling when the doors open and Jason was about to be teleported back home. It reminded me of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey. I also noticed how the costume of the main villain, Saris, have you noticed that it's constantly in motion every time he speaks and moves? Like it's part of his body? Yeah, yeah. If yeah. you look back and see the scenes he's in, his, his chest plate is moving, his antenna are slightly in motion, and he has those weird-looking dragonfly wings that flare up every time he gets angry. I'm, <laughs> I love that. I I'm love pretty, that so much. <laughs> I'm pretty sure a lot of that was electronic, but it reminded me of the Transformer video games, War and Fall of Cybertron, how the character's mechanical parts are in constant motion, even when they're standing still. It was the same with Saris. It looked creepy, gross, and it worked. I think it was mostly makeup and costume artists, but it worked. I loved it. It was, Rebecca. It was makeup and costume artists. The, you know, the CG in terms of the creature effects was minimal to none. In fact, I think the only CG for a creature in this movie was the rock monster. Yeah, the rock monster. But the, the animatronics and costume and makeup designs for this movie were fantastic. And I truly miss the style of <laughs> bringing bringing creatures to life if i'm being blunt this movie had one of the last few uh, electronics they used for a while animatronics yeah i mean we were let's see this was 1999 yeah we were slowly transitioning out because 1999 dave correct me if i'm wrong was also the year of the phantom menace you are correct sir Yes, and... The pioneering film of 1999, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm coming back for you, but uh, the, the big... <laughs> Good. Good. The big shift in Phantom Menace was Jar Jar Binks, the creation of a fully realized CG character. That was sort of the beginning of moving in that direction with other CG characters. You know, we it evolved further with uh, Gollum 
in Lord of the Rings. And then now everyone's CG. Black Panther is fully CG. Spider-Man is fully CG. So I, I really appreciate the animatronic makeup effects that were used in this film because, you know, nothing, nothing pops it. So talking about makeup looking spot on and everything, does anybody notice that Alan Rickman's headpiece is always like it's visible? <laughs> like the line is always, always visible. Can we? Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did anybody notice how seamlessly it looks, how flawlessly it works in that scene where he's talking to the other, the alien that's dying? He says that classic line. By <laughs> like it go back and look at that the makeup it looks spotless you can't see the seam on the headpiece and i think that's like an homage to him finally accepting this character that he loathes so much well you know alan rickman actually had a lot of input for that headpiece he really? uh yeah well he can we, let's just talk about alan rickman for a second here shall we let's just go yeah. into this. if we're gonna talk about uh, alan rickman please. let's talk about alan rickman uh, this is alan rickman is definitely my favorite character in the movie he has the best lines i love the fact we never actually see him without the prosthetic head his comedic <laughs> timing i mean man we really lost a talent when he passed the man can do anything he he's Hans Grumman in Die Hard. He's Snape in Harry Potter, but he he could do comedy as well. 1999 was the year for comedic Alan Rickman because uh, Dogma came out earlier that year as well. Just what a gift. And we no longer have that gift walking among us. But yes, he, he chose the screenplay. He wanted to do this movie because not because of the sci-fi elements, but because he loves comedy. And he didn't get to do a whole lot of comedy, but he loves comedy. And he had a lot of input on the prosthetic. He said it needed to be just realistic enough for the aliens to buy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I actually love the fact that, you know, it starts coming apart as the movie goes on. The only time you actually ever see his hair is when it's like sticking out of the holes. <laughs> 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 So, you know, he he was just wonderful in this movie. A complete joy. I think his comedic timing upstages everyone. Everyone did a great job, don't get me wrong, but he just swept the movie for me. He's really something. And that, and that says a lot given how good uh, the other actors, especially Tim Allen and Scorny Weaver and Tony, all are in this film. There's a scene where Tim is acting his butt off, giving that speech about how we deceived you and how we lied. And after that was over, Tim himself was like, I'm going to need a minute. That was emotionally draining. And Alan just walked up behind them as they were watching the dailies and goes, my God, he finally is experiencing acting. (laughs) (laughs) That is so him. (laughs) You know, you know who also said something to Tim Allen after that scene? Who's on set that day? No. Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, yeah. Yes, Steven Spielberg was there, and he he came up to Tim Allen and, and uh, complimented him on that scene after after the uh, the work on it was over. To get a compliment from Steven Spielberg, I mean, you must be doing something right. Like <laughs> <laughs> so I was eight years old when this movie came out. Eight, okay? And I believe that was the age where I finally started to realize that not all television shows are real. And I began to discover what actors are, 
come to think of it, it was because of this movie I began to discover actors in general. And recently, after watching Galaxy Quest, I I got a little teary-eyed when they showed Alexander Dane as Dr. Lazarus at the end credits. Because Alan Rickman was... He was the very first actor I ever noticed and paid attention to at that time. In fact, it might have been the first time I ever saw him in a movie at all. I loved his character in the movie. He was just so unique and funny and different from the rest. Not because of that weird alien fin headdress he wears throughout the whole movie, but because he he starts out as this stuffy, snooty, jealous, has-been theater actor and slowly ends up becoming a hero that leads a group of extinct Thermians to a, a revolt against Ceres' men. And not only that, he bonds with a young Thermian, sort of. Quellic is his name. Quellic was his true and number one fan who idolized him and ended up dying in his arms. And I think that was the very first time I inadvertently truly paid attention to method acting. When Alexander slowly rises up and walks towards Quellic's killer, he says nothing but his eyes... They, they were screaming long before he started to, and it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was that powerful to me back then, and it still is to this day. It gave me a sense of how each life is precious every moment, which is probably why I enjoyed watching this movie in the first place. Each scene, each movement, each line is a precious moment. And in a way, I feel like... Alan Rickman taught me that, and I began to well up a little when the credits came, and it's it's like watching an old friend in some home movies. He may be Professor Snape to a lot of folks out there, but he will always be Alexander Dane to me, always. I want to uh, go over that scene that Rebecca was talking about where uh, Quillick, is that his name? Tells, yeah. yeah, he tells Alexander that he was like a father to him, even though he's only, you know, watched him through the historical documents and and whatnot. I've been to enough conventions and seen enough, like, convention panels on YouTube and whatnot. And Rebecca, I, I think you know where I'm going with this, where a, a person will come up to the mic stand, right? And they'll say something to the effect, uh, in this particular case, Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime, uh, at, at a convention panel. They'll say something to the effect of, uh, sir, my father was not there for me when I was very small. My mom had to uh, work two jobs to make ends meet. And I I watched Transformers every Saturday morning. And, you know, you were Optimus Prime and your voice was like the closest I've had to, you know, a father growing up and whatnot, which, you know, it, it seems so silly when we hear it just like out of nowhere like that, you know, like you've always been a father to me or something like that, even though they're playing a character on a TV show. But the fact is people can be very fragile. You know, these fandoms that we are invested in offer a sense of community for a lot of people in that community. They sort of look up to these actors and whatnot to be a, a source of inspiration, a source of comfort that they haven't been able to find in other avenues of their lives. And I always felt that that one scene kind of encapsulated that whole concept very, very well. So I sort of understand where you're kind of coming from with, you know, what Alan Rickman taught me in that moment. It was, it was almost like art imitating art. 
yeah. in, in that sense. So I definitely get that. Well, moving on with our discussion on the film, there, there's something I do want to uh, bring up that I think gets overlooked a lot, uh, and that is the score for the film. The composer is uh, David Newman, and at first glance, that doesn't seem like a composer many of us are familiar with, right? But he's, he's, he's actually done a lot of work for films not well known for their scores, not because they're bad scores, but because they're often comedies or something that doesn't always require a grand orchestra. But the movie he's done that we're most fond of is this little tale called Serenity. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. really? I had so, no idea. Yeah. Huh. So he, he had actually done a space opera type film. <laughs> before Serenity with with Galaxy Quest. And I'm going to tell you, I'm obsessed with the score. Uh, most of you know me as kind of the film score buff, I guess. But it, you know, it's really redundant with its main theme. But I think that's on purpose in an attempt to parody all the different Star Trek themes. But it's still a great theme. I, and, I, and I love how it swells toward the, the end when they all, they all rush to the command deck and into the, the last battle. You guys remember the kind of... It leads into it a little bit. Oh, there. Yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. It's yeah. such it gets, a good, it's it gets, such a good piece. It's very uh, climatic. <laughs> yeah, it does. And it, it sounds like it could be a Star Trek theme. It embarrassingly stacks up to Goldsmith and Horner and Giacchino. And I think if you transplanted some of the, the pieces in this movie into a Trek film, it would work. And I don't, I just don't think... David Newman just gets enough credit, and I don't think the score gets enough credit either. I, I love the score. Are you kidding me? GJ, you used to hum that all the time. See? There we go. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm going to embarrass you for a little bit. For a little uh, bit. No, okay. wait. Okay, hold on. Where, where, where is this going? I'll tell you if you let me speak. <laughs> uh, there are several ways you can embarrass him, Rebecca. Just tell uh, us which one. I don't, know. I don't know if I like where this is going. When, there was a time when we were kids. He and I were playing with our toys, and out of the uh-uh, blue, you're not going here. You're not he going. He starts here. <laughs> bursting the main Galaxy Quest theme, and I'm just sitting here looking at him like, "What are you doing? This is Galaxy <laughs> Quest. This is a Galaxy Quest. It's Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> we're, we're playing Dragon Ball Z, and he's humming Galaxy <laughs> Quest <laughs> for whatever reason. Oh, I just had an idea. I just had an oh, idea. Oh my god. What's your idea? So we were playing DBZ figures while you were humming Galaxy Quest, right? Right, yeah. What if I drew a Galaxy Quest Dragon Ball Z crossover poster? Do you think some people would like that? I think it should happen. A good X amount of likes or retweets. What do you think? Can Piccolo be uh, Alexander? (laughs) Well, well, duh, JR. How else? (laughs) Listeners, what do you think? Uh, Do you think I, I, I should draw a poster... Uh, Galaxy Quest, Dragon Ball Z crossover poster. What do you think? I don't think they're going to answer right now. But uh, the other thing I want to bring up, and this is a big thing that we haven't touched on, is how the film was initially going to be a rather raunchy adult R-rated comedy. At bare minimum, it was going to be a raunchy PG-13, but DreamWorks wanted something that could compete with uh, Paramount's Rugrats movie that was coming out, and they... They cut it down to a family-friendly PG, which just goes to show that sometimes movies really are made in the editing room. But the, the writer of the film, Robert Gordon, said he wasn't thinking of a family film when he wrote it. 
he was just you know writing what he wanted to see and these these scenes included people <laughs> getting decapitated when the ship crashes at the convention center uh gwen played by scorny weaver uh, seducing some aliens which is why her her uniform is ripped at the end and a a cut sequence where we see alexander's quarters alan rickman's character and, and tim allen called the quarters scene a proctologist's worst nightmare because it had a lot of sharp objects around his buttocks for some reason <laughs> 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 So I guess the question here is, do you think the movie would have been more or less successful had it been a less family-friendly, more R-rated film? I think it would have been less successful. Why do you think that? Well. Because, GJ. Because, GJ. (laughs) Because. Activist, yes. (laughs) Dave, you've been kind of quiet lately. What do you think about the the R-rated? Should we release the R-cut hashtag? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) absolutely not and i'll tell you why this is a star trek movie star Ah. trek is family friendly it has a message that's accessible for all ages and the second you stamp an r rating on that movie it becomes more exclusive to the adults it becomes less accessible for the younger folks who are going to be the ones that evangelize this movie when they grow up what he said (laughs) what he said um well i look forward to your your thoughts on star trek discovery after uh after that one but uh yeah no i mean i i I totally agree i think it works best as family friendly fair and i didn't know there was r-rated material originally in the film with the exception of uh, sigourney weaver's dubbed over screw that line but uh (laughs) which is very it's very very clear she's if saying you're, something else. If you're watching this TV, you know what she's saying. But uh, yeah, no, I, I tend to concur just because I think the movie works as is. I had no idea, you know, it was supposed to be PG-13 or R or whatever. And I didn't feel like I was missing anything in terms of comedy when when it was released. Here's the thing. If you make this an R-rated movie, it turns into Spaceballs. There's a different type of humor involved in it, well. and there's a different type of parody involved in it. Yeah, but Spaceballs okay. wasn't rated R, though. No, but it has. But some, it was raunchy and it, it was, was heavy raunchy. on language. It, yeah, it has some suggestive themes. You don't get the same kind of love letter to Star Trek. You don't get the mockumentary that they're going for. Instead of just plain out, let's spoof Star Wars. You know. So to me, this is a a much more creative, enjoyable, and entertaining love letter than is if it were R. I think it could still be a love letter if it were R-rated. Dave probably put it best. He he definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of why it's important that this reach a wide audience. And I think the sincerity about the love letter aspect to this movie is more apparent with its current kind of family-friendly rating. Agreed. All right, so my third point actually ended up being some questions for you three regarding the movie. So I want want to play this up for a second. First question, what was your favorite Star Trek parody moment in the film? Oh, there are so many. 
Oh man. <laughs> okay, the when they beam up the hog and it turns inside out, I suggested we talk about this movie because it reminded me of when I was watching Star Trek. Spock takes out the dude he Vulcan grips in the first movie. He looks almost identical to Guy. Like, <laughs> like he's got the same kind of look. He's got the same kind of like little, what is it, beard? He's got the same kind of little beard. I was like, that's Guy. We should do Galaxy Quest. But I, that's if, we're, if, we're talking, if we're talking about like best parody moment of Star Trek, it has to be the character of Guy. Because <laughs> Guy, is, Guy is the walking Star Trek meme. Uh, Rebecca, what about you? What was your favorite kind of parody moment? I mean, I was going to say Guy and his little, his little tantrum breakdown in the, in the, the little fact that he's a red shirt. That he's a red shirt. <laughs> Nobody knows his last name. And- what, what, what's the other line? All right. So we're going to go in in a V formation and we're going to take it. Wait, did you say episode 81? Yeah. Why? What's wrong with episode 81? Because I was supposed to die at episode 81. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rebecca, what about your what's what's your favorite kind of Star Trek parody moment um, in the film? Well, I'm gonna go back to Alan Rickman uh, at the end credits where he they show him his his character and his and his name. He his eyebrow tweaks a little bit like Spock. Oh, it does. I looked at that. I was like, that's Spock. <laughs> it does. I didn't even realize that. Spock. That's funny. You that stole mine. Um, so I guess for me, I'm not going to go with anything in particular, but it it's just something that encapsulates that same spirit. I guess one thing that I really like about it is like, sometimes I like to think about what is going on in Kirk's head right now, or what is going on <laughs> in, um, <laughs> In Picard's head right now, these characters inevitably come up with something so eloquent and tactful and profound. And in Galaxy Quest, you get a no-filtered version of Kirk. (laughs) You get a no-filtered version of Picard. And you get to see what some of those moments would have looked like without that filter without you know that <laughs> i never noticed that. it's really not like a graceful takedown is it he just shoves a bunch of mines in his face <laughs> i can't believe none of you said the exit from dry dock oh that was it <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> for me, because the dry dock flyby is what happens in both Star Trek motion picture yeah, and Star that's Trek Two. The other reason I wanted to do this, <laughs> I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> oh. And you know, in both movies, in both Star Trek and Star Trek Two, the Enterprise taking off out of dry dock is this eloquent, beautiful, you know, majestic thing that's going on with with this sweeping music from goldsmith and then later horner and in galaxy (laughs) quest it's it's (laughs) you know they they don't know how to fly the ship so it like clangs up against the interior of dry dock and scrapes off the paint and (laughs) and everybody's trying to like mentally turn the ship with their head yeah right it's like it's like when you're 
when you're holding a uh, a game controller and you're like you're like you know you're you're turning your whole body to turn whatever car you're using in Mario Kart to go the same direction, you know? It's just it's guys just, guys just sitting over there, you, you gotta turn it. I mean I know man, I just stop it. <laughs> Alright, so the next question. Who is your favorite character? Alexander. Yeah. I figured Rebecca would be. <laughs> Who ha- have I been talking about all this time? Sam Rockwell's character. Guy Thank you. Fleegman. Uh, Fle- Fle- Fleegman? Guy Fleegman? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I love Sam Rockwell to no end. I don't think he gets enough love in this movie because, I mean, it's a star studded cast, right? Right. And this is. Uh, I wouldn't say it's during it's in the infancy of his career, but it's towards the beginning for sure. Mm-hmm. And you know, he is an absolute rock star in this. I love Sam Rockwell yeah. so much. <laughs> he he did a fantastic so job. Cute. Yeah, I love when his when they all sort of like beam onto the ship for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a grand tour? <laughs> and then he just. <laughs> Hollers, this blood curdling scream. (laughs) Jr., what about you? You know, it's hard for me to pick a cast member in this movie because they all bring something unique and just wonderful to their characters. But I think everybody overlooks Tony Shalhoub in this movie. Where where guys just like he's like going in with the uh, the suicide plan. He's like, I'm gonna die, and he he goes, Wait, wait, maybe you're the plucky comic relief. But uh, anyway, (laughs) I just got a wicked idea. (laughs) And the fact that he like nothing phases him in this movie, (laughs) pretty much. Like it's this life changing experience that he shot through space and he saw this brand new galaxy and he just comes up the platform like, Hey, what's up? What's on with him? I think his then, line his line was, That was a hell of a thing. <laughs> and when they're going down to the planet and the uh the dry the he's little eating. Yeah, he's eating like eating. first of all, first of all, he's eating I don't. I may have been five when these things came out, but they're like the little sticks with cheese. Yeah, I miss those things. But he's just sitting there. He's like, "Ah, oh, this is one heck of a ride." And he's just. And then <laughs> when he starts making out with the alien, and the tentacles come up, <laughs> he's just like, "What the? Oh, forget! It, I'm going with it." <laughs> he's a very overlooked character in this movie. My favorite part in him with them is when they're trying to get away from Sarah's and they're at like warp speed or turbo boost or something. And they, hey. they go to him on the screen. It's like, Hey guys, so. very monotone. They're the, telling me something wrong with the, uh, the all that. They say that's <laughs> not, <laughs> they say that's not good. And then, <laughs> and Captain, they say there's a spare brithium core on a planet. Okay. We're going to go get that. Oh, that's great. Bring it in, guys. Good job. All group hug. <laughs> Here's my last question for you guys. You can only pick one. What is your favorite line in the movie? So this may sound cheap to begin with, but bear with me here. 
My favorite quote comes from Alexander Dane, you know, the quintessential line by Grathbar's hammer by the sons of Orvan, you shall be avenged. <laughs> That's my favorite line. But the reason that it's my favorite line is because of what it represents for that character and for pretty much all the characters. And that's embracing this show that has, you know, helped define their careers, for lack of a better term. And when I, when I think of this line and when Alexander says that with the utmost sincerity at that one point in the film, you know, he's dying in his arms and he says it with all the sincerity that he has. And in that moment, he actually is internalizing that and accepting that this character is a part of who he is. The show is a part of who he is. And he just embraces it in that moment. And I liken this a lot to Will Wheaton's story, right? You know, Will Wheaton was part of Next Gen. And for a long time, he kind of pushed away from this role that helped define his career. And he tried to distance himself from it. And for a long time, that's what it did. And he built up a resentment around it because of that. Eventually, he turned the page and embraced what that show did for him and that it is a part of him. He embraced the fandom and now he's an, this ambassador of geek culture. What I think of this line here and what it sort of represents throughout this movie, that's what I think of. I was just going to say it's not fair from Alexander Dane. <laughs> when he's, I, mean, I mean i can't top that you, you, you won dave <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't even want to say mine anymore <laughs> i can't even find it but i don't want to say it either <laughs> my bad <laughs> my favorite line is part of what dave's is but ends Completely differently. I, I I guess this is what Will Wheaton was was like before he started embracing things. By Grathaw's hammer. What a savings. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, that specific one right there is something that Simon Pegg quotes all the time. Allegedly. <laughs> I, I wish we could do that justice because you have to see the full effect of it. You yeah. gotta see. You gotta see his like hesitation and his hatred in it, and the way his lip kind of like curls as he say it. <laughs> it what quivers in disdain. Yes. Yes. yes, that's exactly what I'm trying. What's a savings? <laughs> All right. Uh, my favorite has to be. It doesn't take a good actor to recognize a bad actor. You're sweating. <laughs> Which might have been uh, a little more of Tim Allen's own reflection because he he went on record saying he's he goes I'm not a thespian yeah I'm I'm a stand up comedian I'm not a thespian like like Alan Rickman so it, he probably doesn't consider himself on yeah, the same because he, level. he wasn't he was he didn't have like a big box office movie like Alien or he's not a thespian like Alan Rickman but he's yeah. on the same stage with them. So yeah. I, I I like that line a lot. Well, do we have anything else we want to uh, say about the film, or should we move on to our our routine here? Um, let me make sure I don't have any more notes. Cam Winston. 
<laughs> you I'm will sorry, rule like, the day. <laughs> I don't care. Niall's got to have it. <laughs> when I was looking at the practical effects for this, and every time I saw Stan Winston Studios, all I could think of was Fraser Crane looking at <laughs> this film and being like, Stan Winston. <laughs> <laughs> so the the last topic I really have is more of a suggestion for our listener. If you guys here haven't seen it either, I'd highly, highly recommend the documentary about this movie called Never Give Up, Never Surrender, which was done by the Screen Junkies. And it's basically a more elaborate version of what we've talked about today with probably just as much love as we tried to give it and as much justice as we've tried to give this show or this movie here. But if, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It goes into greater detail about the actors and what their thoughts were and even the concept of cosplay of how cosplay can breathe life into a new franchise and i believe will wheaton it's probably one of my favorite will wheaton quotes of all time says true love is cosplay it shows your devotion and your love for the characters and this show and the universe that was built. And that sums up what this movie is to me. It's basically a love letter to anybody who's ever loved a franchise or time travel or space or just a heck of a good time. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Do it. It's on Amazon Prime. That's unfortunately the only place I've been able to find it, but is well worth a watch. I'll echo that as well. It, it it features not only people who were directly involved with the film, but also a bunch of fanboys. You know, you have people like Greg Berlanti, you know, the man himself responsible for the DC TV universe. And he is putting in his two cents of what this movie mean, means to him. Uh, David Lindelof is another big face that's in this that geeks out about this this movie. It's 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 definitely worth a watch. So I just want to echo what Jr. was talking about there. And I think that uh, about wraps it up for the topic. I think we should ro- roll out the uh, routine business with a little poorly pitched. Who had it last time? I had it last time, and my poorly pitched was. A woman is harassed by a homeless man and through lies and deception gives in to his advances and then goes on to show questionable judgment by staying with him after the shroud has been lifted. So, what do you guys think? I got nothing. Revenge of the Sith. No. (laughs) (laughs) I really have no idea. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I don't... Go for it. Aladdin. Oh, for Oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, I was pulled by a kid's movie. <laughs> a woman is harassed by a homeless man, Aladdin. <laughs> yep. And through yep. lies and deception, magic and the genie, gives into his advances as, you know, <laughs> Prince Ali, and shows questionable judgment by staying with it after the shroud had been lifted. <laughs> I think that's self-explanatory. <laughs> okay. Okay. God. I never thought 
I never thought of Aladdin harassing Jasmine. <laughs> That's just... She you know literally what? sneaks uh. up to her window. Uh, bravo, Dave. Bravo. Well, if nobody has a poorly pitched, I have one. Do it. This is about a teenage boy who tries so hard to be himself in a chaotic, judgmental world, and in the end, he gives his brother the ultimate wedding gift. What? That's all we get? Mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. like the wedding is part of a big thing, though. Ah. <laughs> I think that was longer than your last one, G, to be fair. Yeah, okay, that's <laughs> fair enough. Huh. Oh my gosh. All right. Q, your huzz. Huh. 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 <laughs> now that poorly pitched is out of the way, let's do some fanboy 50. Yes. All right. Looks like Rebecca's eager, so I'm going to let her go first. <laughs> I've been practicing this one. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Here we go. On your mark, get set, go. So I'm watching this show on Netflix called Toast of London, starring Matt Berry. You probably know him as Lazo from What We Do in the Shadows and Douglas Renham from the IT Crowd. It's a British sitcom about a struggling middle-aged actor named Stephen Toast who has an awful agent going through a divorce and gets the worst possible gigs ever. His recent play, his recent one, is a play that's so offensive and controversial that every day there are protesters outside of the theater. Each episode consists of a certain gig he's in, whatever, whether it's voiceover, movie, show, or porn, and he always gets in a, into a mess of trouble while trying to fulfill his commitment to the controversial play. I do not recommend this kit recommend this for kids under the age of 15. There's a lot of language, explicit behavior, but overall, it's hilarious. Also, if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, Shazad Latif, who plays Chief of Security Ash Tyler, is in it. Boom. Time. Boom! <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. All right. Um, who's next? I'll go. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So I decided I would give you a look into the life of a day, day off in JR's life. I've been working on my Harry Potter Lego, which <laughs> has taken God knows how long, and I've still only been halfway to get to go. I've also been really excited for Kong versus Godzilla, so I watched both of those today, and I gotta say, I'm even more excited now than I was probably at the announcement of it. Uh, I've been working on my cosplay for Dragon Con in 2020, hope that comes up, hope I can actually finish it, and I finished my book on uh, Kiss Me Like a Stranger by Gene Wilder, and I've moved on to a book called Armada by Ernest Klein. It's basically... If we used video games to train people in the military against aliens to an awesome soundtrack of 80s movies. Time. Very nice. Man, we are like right on lately, aren't we? David, may I have another? As you wish, my dear. I am Mark. Get set. So first up, I want to talk about a show called Longmire. It's a great show that I love. It's got Katie Sackhoff, who I adore, and basically think of it as like a Law and Order show, but set in like a Western type scenario, like Walker, Texas Ranger meets um, meets Law and Order. It's outstanding, really well done. I love it. And the other big thing that I wanted to talk about is I just wrapped up a comic series called Darth Vader Lords of the Sith. Um, Dark Lord of the Sith, excuse me. And this is a story about how Darth Vader, what happened to Darth Vader after the events of Revenge of the Sith. It literally starts as he's coming off the table. You get some insight into how he gets his lightsaber. 
um, some of the early things that he has to go through. You know, we get some insight into time. The, mm, fine. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> so, GJ? Uh, yes. Who's going to time me? On your mark, get set, go. All right, picking up where I left off last time, I wrapped <laughs> up X-Files Season 9, and uh, I at first I was a little disappointed with it, but I, I've, I've warmed up to it, especially since I've started X-Files Season 10. Uh, in between that, there was a movie. I enjoyed the movie. A lot of people didn't like the movie. I, I thought it was a good character study. Uh, the first episode of t- Season 10 made me want to throw the controller through the television. I was so upset by all the plot holes created by the idea that all the conspiracies of, over the last nine years were supposedly a lie. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to get into it. Uh, <laughs> and I've also been reading a Pacific Rim comic that Dave recently got me. I've been enjoying it. I have not finished it yet, so I won't uh, speak on my full opinion of it just yet. But I do enjoy the art. I enjoy Time. the concept. Okay. <laughs> All right, JR, take us home. So thank you for joining us on this journey as we laugh and we cry about a franchise that is near and dear to our hearts. Not only to our hearts, but to a wider fandom out there of nerd cultures and nerd expanses of all unities and all sectors and all termites and Dalmatians. Thank y'all for joining us on the discussion of Galaxy Quest. If you want to know where to find me. I'm JR. I'm on Instagram at Little Man Cosplay, where I've teased something I'm working on at DragonCon 2020. Hope you guys like that. And I'm Dave. I do another geek pod with my fiance called Pizza and Parsex. And you can check us out on pizzaandparsex.com or bit.ly backslash linkspnp or on your podcasting platform of choice. I'm G. You can find me on Twitter at Gman of Mysterioid. For all your Godzilla, Gamera, Ultraman, and correct opinion needs. And I'm Rebecca, and you can find me and my artwork on bit.ly slash rebhudge. I'm on DeviantArt, Rebecca Hudgens, Instagram, Rebecca Hudgens Artist, and Twitter at rebhudge. Also, if you really want me to, I will draw a crossover poster of Galaxy Quilts and Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like this is more for you at this point. <laughs> Please tell me you want it. Please tell me you want it. Rebecca, you can draw whatever you want. You're the artist. And we are the Drift Space. You can check us out on our show at bit.ly backslash TDS links, where you can find us on all your favorite podcatchers. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend. Then both of you guys can hit us up on our socials at the Drift Space geek out with us or just say hey what's up and as always thanks for listening and for your support stay nerdy my friends thanks (laughs) thanks never give up never surrender broke the ship you broke the bloody ship (laughs) that's another line that's another line yep (laughs) good night guys (laughs) 